I'm going to be careful. I've just said, I've said a whole bunch of stuff that's now up to the editor's choice. You could make me look like a real douchebag. I couldn't do that if I tried. Not in good conscience. But oh, thank you. The, 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 the trust is appreciated. And everybody that's clicked on this little old episode and decided to have a listen, thank you for trusting us that this is going to be an interesting chat just now. So thank you for listening. This is the Price of Entry podcast. My name is Brennan Kavanagh. And if you've listened to any other episode, I'm actually doing an introduction for a change rather than just going straight into a conversation. So it'd probably help if I explain who I'm talking to this week. So this week I'm chatting to a mate who's responsible for me getting to bow hunting, which by the way, thank you. My, I thank you. My bank account doesn't thank you. Um, but Aaron also is the chief operating officer at Bolt Group and also has his own podcast. Today, we're going to probably chat about both those things, time permitting. Thanks for your time, Aaron. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, my friend. I am stoked to be here and weird being on the other end of things. I'm going to be honest. Well, what was it? A fortnight ago? Plus, we mm. recorded the episode where I was the guest on your podcast and I was complaining about how weird it was. You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Tit for tat. How the tides have turned. How's it feel? Yeah, good. I actually, I've got to be honest, I find, and you might be able to relate to this, I actually find a little bit more pressure being the host because your responsibility is to drive and mold and form the content that you're responsible for delivering to your followers. Absolutely. And how have you found that process now that you're a few episodes? Because how many episodes in you? Like six, seven, seven episodes in mm. the Iron Will podcast. Check it out, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. How have you found the experience? Very like um, running a podcast, but also hosting it. Cause I feel like they're two very separate things. Yeah. Um, it's been all consuming, which is kind of like, me a little bit i'm and nicole and i my wife were talking about it last night and i i do i do kind of aim for the moon it's like we're going for the we're going to the moon that's me right it's like we're going to the moon and so that's that's what i was like a bit with this with this podcast iron will and i've been brought back down to reality or gravity so to speak How so? uh um the administration and just logistics of running a podcast during, well, during COVID for starters, which makes things inherently more complicated, as you are intimately aware. And but, pause on that, mm-hmm. the, the logistics of it. I love the irony to what your day job is, but anyway, yeah. continue. <laughs> we'll get to That's that. That's true. But the, just trying to formulate, taking, taking a concept and then formulating it into a presentable idea that you can articulate and create a vision and a mission for and make it consistent and get consistent content that hits the mark. And, you know, you're not just padding out um, content for the sake of padding content out, but you're purposeful in your engagements throughout your, your content. These are things you don't think about. And also as well is that we're all time poor. That's the big one. And so, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, it's, it, this is the barrier of entry is fairly small. It's never been smaller, right? For people to be able to craft their own content and get their voice out there and their message and their initiative, whatever it might be. So that's certainly a lot easier. 
logistically and and you know from a price of entry perspective see what i did there i like it <laughs> but but it, it is it is um amazingly um accessible it is and i couldn't agree more i found the exact same thing and i've in particular since doing this more via zoom because of lockdown it was born a necessity that i was doing it over zoom got a microphone that plugs into the laptop to help with this and I'm probably not going to go back to in-person if I can avoid it purely really? from my experience to the first few episodes, trying to logistically organize getting face-to-face -face with someone for over an hour, given briefing time, debrief after the episode, general chit chat, especially mm. if it's somebody I don't know, I haven't seen in a while. Mm. It's a chunk of time finding a place to do it. Like mm. one, the one with Tony, was a classic example and I really try not to edit from start to finish other than maybe a little bit of top and tail where the conversation actually starts and actually finishes for the listener. But that podcast, we, I had to cut bits out because you had kids coming out wanting to go to bed. He had to run off for a second. Wife came up for a bit. The dog went off at a possum halfway through for like a period of time that was longer than would be tolerable to a podcast. I'm like, ah, well, because we're doing it outside because it was the only space in the house. We did it outside one evening and it was just, that was the only space. Whereas if it was done via Zoom, it's more of a controllable environment. It's a controllable time. And given the age that we're in, people are used to it. They can jump on, bang, done. It's a lot easier. And in terms of that sort of consistency of content, I find that to be able to do this consistently, this forum is probably going to be better for me. Yeah. I can understand that. You're a bit ahead of me in that I've never done an in-person podcast. So for me, it's always been remote. And uh, I, I will try it. And I think you've got to do it with select people based yeah. on the requirement. Um, so we'll see. We'll, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. Love it. And how have you found the hosting side of things? So we talked about the logistics side of just getting it started, but how have you found being in the host seat? Yeah, I'm, I'm a... I've always been a one-on-one -on -one person anyway. So I've, I've always enjoyed well, it's a bit of a paradox in that regard. I'm a fairly manic sort of personality, if I can be brutally honest with everyone. And Nicole, Nicole will attest to that, who has been scorned with living with me for 10 years. What do you mean by manic personality? I'm fairly extreme. I'm quite a moody person as well at times. So if I can be honest. So I, I, do, I do operate in that. I'm not, I, I want to be more stoic. Right. That's, that's one of the things that I'm at at the moment. So being a host as well, I have to try and um, where am I going with that? I, I need to, you know, engaging one-on-one -on -one is certainly my comfort zone. I don't like big crowds. I don't like big groups. That's not something I've ever really enjoyed being in parties and things like that. That's not something I've ever enjoyed. I'm not an introvert per se, but I am, um, I do enjoy my own space and my own, my own place. Uh, so engaging one-on-one -on -one in meaningful conversation, which is what I would call it, meaningful conversation, that stimulates me greatly. And I love that. And I think that's what makes this medium at direct odds with everything else that comes out of modern mainstream media these days is that everyone is being fed, spoon-fed sound bites, edited snaps of information that barely resemble their, their, their original truths and are only cut therefore to produce profit or attention. Hundred percent. Yeah, and what we do here is far beyond that. And and all the successful podcasters that have gone well before us over the last decade or so, 
have proven that. That if you had have said to someone, oh, I'm going to listen to a two and a half hour discussion, they would have said, you've got to be joking. There's no market for that. But you and I both know we've all sat down to Joe Rogan for two and a half hours and been absolutely enthralled. Mm. Mm. Enthralled I, by it. I listened you know? to one with, with Jordan Peterson and someone the other day. And I feel like some of his more recent episodes and the people that he's talking to, the descriptions of what they cover are getting more and more bizarre to the point I'm always having to Google the description to figure out what they're talking about. And I listen to it and it's so enlightening and it's so insightful and so much better than, guess what, Jordan DeGoe did in uh, New York. Don't care. (laughs) Stop trying to make me care. Yeah. Because I'd rather listen to something I know nothing about than something I don't care about. And I feel like that's, you know, where, and as we touched on, if you want to hear about us talk about it, you got to go listen to Aaron's podcast where we talked about previously about that sort of breakthrough point, the necessary evils of uh, social media to get the message out there on these short form platforms so that people can listen to this long form discussion that, you know, pumping our tires is a little bit, we like to think is a little bit more meaningful, a little bit more insightful and a little bit more helpful than finding out what Jordan DeGoey did in New York on Halloween. So who is that person? I don't know who that is. So it's a, you're joking? No, I'm not. Okay, cool. Just to be sure. Um, he's a I'm not Collingwood, being facetious. i got no idea who that is. Collingwood AFL player. Um, it's obviously the off-season for the AFL right now. He's a bit notorious. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I don't know the name, but I, do, I read an article today about a guy who, who sexually assaulted a woman in New York. Is that who you're talking about? Yeah. 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 Play it up during the off-season. Mm. What a cliche. Boys that shave, Brendo. <laughs> Boys that shave. And I feel like that's a good segue just to talk about what your podcast is about. Here's mm-hmm. my definite. You gave a very kind and very generous definition of mine when I was on yours. This is my attempt to encapsulate yours. The I'm Will podcast, as you say, is all about truth, courage, and integrity. And the, my sort of read on it so far listening is I feel like it's You're curating a collection of content to equip men with the tools, advice, and aspirational role models to help them navigate this crazy, crazy planet right now. Good. It's better than than how I've articulated it. (laughs) See, how funny is it? Because I said the exact same thing. Is that trademarked what you've just said? Because I might poach it. All yours, because I said the exact same thing when you uh, described my podcast. I'm like, yeah, that is what it's about. <laughs> and so, what and inspired you to start a podcast? Where'd that come from? What was sort of that? Moment? So, well, it, this this kind of attempts to answer some of your first question as well. In that, mm. I am 100 percent outside my comfort zone because I'm in I'm in I'm a massively private person, and anyone who knows me will will understand that that i am a very private person i i'm actually very uninterested in anyone knowing anything more about me than they have to that's absolutely necessary possible which is a weird kind of thing but i've always been like that um and whether that's because that's an insecurity piece where i can control the narrative or whether it's just a carnal thing where i just don't like people knowing anything about me from a privacy perspective i don't know but i've always been like that and so the the drive to starting iron will came as quite an uncomfortable concept to me because it meant me putting myself out there because we all know that if you want to meet people where they are, you've got to be vulnerable mm. and you've to breed respect. You've, you've got to open up to people and be honest and you've got to be real and tangible with people. 
Otherwise, you, you're not going to connect with them. No one wants to talk to another sterile, you know, media knob, you yeah. know, who tries to put up this facade of nonsense where they're they've got a squeaky clean, you know, squeaky clean life until they get caught out having an affair twenty years later. You know what I mean? Which which is quite often always the case. And so, I, I believe in in legitimacy and you know in being real. And so that was something I had to trade as an element of privacy for that to be a possible. And that's was a challenging part of Iron Will. But why did I start Iron Will? Well, essentially because I think that there is um, a, a massive need for men to feel reconnected with their creator one and also to be shown specifically what a real man looks like. And that's, and that's something that I'm not an authority on. That's why mm. I've brought guests on because I'm not. Uh, yeah. I'm how not, would the ego be to be like, yeah, guys, yeah. I've got the answers. Yeah. Here's my book. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, that's right. That and, doesn't and, work out. And that just becomes another self-help guy, which, which I'm not, I'm not interested in being Tony Robbins, right? As, as, as rich as he is, it's very nice. But I, wouldn't you, like I worked a Tony Robbins event when I was living in Sydney. Did you? Humble brag. Really? Um, Did at, you meet him? At the Sydney Showgrounds. Well, depends. So people pay up to $15,000. Big bucks. $15,000 for just a standard entry ticket for a two-day conference. And it's in a massive hall that usually hosts trade shows that have 300 plus exhibitors it's massive so what they do is they bring in all these um curtains that are probably about 20 meters high and that helps with the sound but also brings the space in and they had about 120 people mm. well, it's capacity for 120 people and a massive led screen and a satellite feed from the states in which he appeared so you're paying fifteen thousand dollars for two days to listen to somebody on a screen but wait there's more you could pay $22,000 and get into the Diamond Lounge where you get an extra two hours one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. But it's not really one-on-one. -on -one. It's you're in a group, but it's Q&A. So you pay an extra couple of grand for Q&A. That's insane. And, and look, don't get me wrong. Some of the stuff that he says, great. Oh, yeah. Great home truths. And you go, that's brilliant. Is it new? Not really. It's nothing mind-blowing, but it's good quality stuff. That's kind of my point as well, is that I think that everyone has something to tell you. You, mm. have, you have something to learn off everyone. And it can be like a positive-negative or it can be a positive-positive. Yeah, positive. Well, you can look at someone you absolutely loathe and hate and look at their decision-making and go, yeah, that's what's not to do. It's true. Do you know what I mean? And mm. so I think that from we've all got something to learn from someone, even those that we think are the absolute deplorables, to use a thrash phrase these days. But the the point to me is the the point that we're trying to make earlier is that is that the, that was my whole idea is that I want to bring people on, mm. you know, and, and and try and shed some light uh, for men and give them a path forward because as much as as much as there are some really great initiatives around mental health and, mm. and all these support systems, the fact is, is that right now in society, in modern society, there has never been a more uncomfortable place to dwell for a man who wants to get in touch with his traditional values and 
his traditional creator and the way in which he is meant to live. And modern society is so sanitized, feminized, homogenized that it's at a point where it's like trying to work out which way is up and which way is down. And it can be really hard for blokes to understand where they're supposed to live. And the sad part is the default for blokes these days is to be a bit of a dick and to be a bit of a knob. And that's not what we're meant to be. We're not meant to just be punting, what going to local footy, being aggressive on the piss, you know, um, you know, just being, you know, unreliable, you know, couch sitting individual, you know, addicted to video games, addicted to pornography, uh, whatever the list is, the list could go on and on and on. Mm. And for a lot of blokes, that that's their state, mm. you know, and, and a lot of guys are frustrated. Mm. They, they, they honestly don't know how to operate inside of modern society. And it's interesting. A lot of those addictions that you just rattled off are all mm. non-interpersonal addictions. They're solo. They're isolating. Mm. And, and I feel like that's what where a lot of men end up is in their own heads and in their own little isolation chamber. And mm. in that chamber as well, whatever it is that's their, their thing that grabs them the most and isolates them there, be it punting, porn and something else starting with p because it's a nice alliteration mm. it's uh, like case in point i was in for work at a bottle shop the other day chatting to the lady it was a boutique wine store with a few craft beers in there um cork and baronia massive shout out they're great guys there <laughs> and chatting to her and she's talking about their struggles with you know people checking in as they walk in they've got a venue where people have to show their vac status and all that and she's like look I understand people's rights to, you know, be frustrated with the mandate. I get that. I get that. But we're the ones that have to cop the $109,000 fine. So, yeah, we're going to enforce it because we can't afford the, the consequences whether we like it or not. Fine. As she was talking about that, two blokes walk in. Textbook tradies. Short shorts, the boots, the singlets. Just walked off the job site. End of the day. Walk in, no masks. And she goes, hey, boys. No, no masks. Both of them. Oh, we're exempt. She's like, okay. Oh, both of you? They're like, yep. Can't ask us for our proof either. And she's like, okay. Well, can you please sign in? Oh, I don't have my phone. Well, can you please get your phone or you can just sign in? Oh, no. And just the, it was that like adolescent, and they would have been late 20s, the adolescent response to somebody just going, hey, guys, this is what you need to do. Be an adult, just but because they didn't like being told by somebody else what to do, their natural bravado state, their base level was to just have to do the oh, oh, oh this is bullshit oh and crack the sads, threw the pen at her. One of them stormed out. Well, where's the piss? I want this, and just immediately just acted like an absolute child that had been told off by their mum, but they weren't. But like, and it's that inability to interface with normal society. Sure, it's not normal times right now, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. But that's no excuse to not be able to treat another human being with respect. Yeah, and that's that's a really good illustration of the exact thing that manifests when men have lost their way. And bravado is a natural state in men. Okay, you you require a certain sense of pride and confidence to accomplish things in life. But what happens when you are 
misinformed or you have lost your way is that bravado manifests in a very deformed aspect that is disrespect and anti-authority. That's the big one. It manifests as anti-authority. And, you know, one of the, one of the strangest things in human culture is graffiti. Talk about that. Tell me about that. Because Mm. why, why, why would your natural state want to be to destroy something beautiful? What, and I'm not saying that every every bridge and every concrete wall is beautiful, but somebody built that wall. Somebody took some time to build that wall and build that bridge. And beauty is relative, right? And so then you come along with your pressure pack can and you spray your tag on it. And you all know, you know well, meaningly, that you're, de- you're, you're, defo- you're, you're defacing someone else's work in order to put your own foot forward. And it's an anti-authority piece, right? And you're destructing things or destroying things, uh, to use better English. And it's the reason why riots, violent riots, are very strange is because it is a manifestation of frustrated men a lot of the time. Right. It's, it's I can't yeah. control anything in my world right yeah, now. Yeah, so I'm going to wreck something beautiful. So I'm going to wreck yeah. something beautiful. I'm going to treat yeah. you like shit because that's what I've got control over right now. And it's the easiest response. Yeah. Because I was changed it because she they left and she was quite upset. And I lingered deliberately back while they were there. Just, I don't know. It was just, I'm just like, I don't want to leave her by herself in here because these guys, she's five foot nothing. They're six foot something. Were they and aggressive? Was, yeah, 100% yeah. push past her. I'm yeah. just like, this is not a good situation. As they walked out, she was like borderline anger and tears, that sort of, you know, fun state mm. of just like fuming, but also rattled because these guys had deliberately intimidated her. Mm. And walking out, she's like, that's that's what we have to put up with. But you know, I made the point afterwards. I'm like, I reckon the response and interaction would have been different if he was there by himself. Yeah, that's right. Because when he, when she went, you need to sign in to him. He looked to his mate and his mate went, and he then went, and it was just monkey see monkey do. Whereas I've seen guys in that same demographic, whatever, this isn't maligning anyone, maligning anyone, Mm. but it was because he felt like he had to maintain a certain bravado Mm. to his mate that he couldn't accept the humility and go, oh, yeah, yeah no, because I've seen people in that exact situation go, oh, yeah, fair enough, no worries, yep, I'll just ride down, cheers. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, and, and p- people find it, it's a lot easier to be um, confrontational with an audience in a weird way. I think that most people, when left to a solitary mm-hmm. interaction, are non-confrontational. Because do you think that it's the the misunderstanding whether it's conscious or unconscious is that confrontation is actually an attacking response when actually it's a defensive response Mm, that's a good point we think we're attacking you're not you're actually being defensive Mm. yeah and that's that's why i call it a manifestation of um a lack of direction or or at least it's 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 a it's a confusion around how to one control your emotions but also interpret the world around you you know in, in a responsible and meaningful way and i think this is a good point to, to caveat what we've been saying and and make it really clear and i say this to people as well because quite often it's the position that people jump to when i try and explain what i am will is is that i'm not interested in slaving any women to stoves <laughs> okay I, i'm not interested in bringing back the good old days where, 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 you know, mass, you know, masculinity ruled the world and, 
and and we were able to smoke inside and women knew their place and all this type of nonsense not at all if anyone knows me i'm married to an extraordinarily independent and and powerful woman who who in her own right is a strong communicator if not better communicator than me and it's the running joke for i think both of us and both of our wives that if we tried any of that boys we would not be living right now yeah that's (laughs) right that's not being facetious no no (laughs) And so, and so I'm all about having that even keel mm. uh, between, um, between the sexes, but I want to make it really, really clear. The sexes share very little similarities, if not none, and they're binary. There yep. is only two, and that's very controversial. And, I'll, and I imagine as I continue, and, and these are my thoughts, okay, not, not your thoughts, and I'll make that really clear on your podcast, but... But well, well, you know, I've got to be careful because the what I'm no, saying mean. right now and what I what I am doing is not not popular, mm. and and it it is very polarizing by today's standards, and and it, it is it is very easily to get offended uh, by what I'm what I'm saying at times. But that's why I've made one of those pillars truth, because I I need to make sure that I stick on that on that truth point and and speak what what I believe is truth. Mm. And, and, and that's one of the things that always confuses me when, when people arc up at this type of discussion, you saying exactly what you just said, this is what I believe to be my truth. And I believe this to be the, the truth. But then when somebody else says, well, I believe that not just sexuality, but gender is fluid, not just attraction is fluid, but gender is fluid that's my truth you don't argue but then they argue with you and your truth so they want truth to be relative with a massive asterisk next to it and it's truth can be relative as long as you agree with me so it's not really relative it's absolute truth and it's just as dogmatic as you know they're often critiques of religion that's yeah. like yeah, you want everyone to be tolerant, but you yourself are completely intolerant of yeah. other people's views. Because if you were tolerant, you'd listen to somebody say what you just said and go, "Cool, help me understand that." Yeah, why yeah. is that? Well, well, I think you know. I, yeah, and I, and I think this is a really important point: is that there are some subjective elements to that, but right. there, but there are some anchor truths that we must all agree on that consist of the fabric of our existence. Absolutely. That is, that is there must be a yardstick. 100%. Okay. And, and, and I actually had this conversation with, and this is a beautiful thing about talking about what I was saying before around, around being vulnerable, is that if you were to stick a camera in anyone for 20, you, know, you stick a microphone in front of everyone for an hour and a half, you're going to find something that we trip up on when we speak. You know, and, and there's things that I've been, you know, probably hazy about in discussion, even over the last seven episodes. Mm. But a friend of mine over the weekend, a very good friend who I respect dearly, came to me respectfully and said, hey, you know, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that, you know, the power of testimony means that no one can refute that. But how does that work for you when you come up against someone who disagrees with your truth and your baseline truth? And their testimony is it juxtaposed to your testimony. Where does that put you? And it's a, it's a really good point, right? It's like, I want to make sure that I remain, you know, fairly open in, in debate and discussion around these things. Yeah. 
But to clear that up is what I was talking about is that your story is your story. Okay. No one can refute your story, but there are anchor truths that we are all governed by in life that must be agreed on at some point in time. And they can be debated till the cows come home, obviously, but that does not mean we have to agree on those points. And those, those points must be separated from the rest. And getting back to what I was saying is that some of the things that, that I talk about is that they, they are conviction of mine in truth. But to your point is that I'm not compelling anyone else to agree with me, but people are compelling me to agree with them. And this is where I've got a problem with the way in which modern society is 100%. going. Is that I'm not interested in becoming a unicorn. Yeah. Okay. Um, or a white rhino, so to speak. I want to make sure that my daughters grow up in a world where there is fair and rational debate about these things, yeah. where the opposite voice is not demonized mm. and shut out from having that discussion. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I feel like to use an overword, overused term nuance, but I feel like sometimes not even nuance. It's that, that need to demonize the opposite or the different and yeah. our intrinsic, I guess, almost instinct to desire black and white mm. and, and want there to be clear defined lines and definitions mm. when, and this is probably my stance. And I reckon probably, you know, maybe a little bit more of the difference between you and I is like, I'm, mm. I'm, to say very gray seems like that I don't have any sort of strong, but for me, I believe like there's my biggest, I guess, thing when it comes to these things is we used to think the world was flat. We used to think leeches were good medical practice. There's so many things in life now that, you know, I feel like our mortal assumption is that we know everything right now. And I feel like in a lot of these arguments, you know, I look back at what I knew when I was 21 and I go, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed because i was a muppet i knew nothing i was less nuanced i didn't have experience and that if everyone could live everyone's experience simultaneously we'd all understand but we don't and we're so limited in our experience therefore so limited in our understanding that mm. to be able to say without a doubt this nuanced thing is black or it's white or it's a unicorn or it's a donkey well you know what given over time I may change. So this yeah. is what I believe right now, but I'm leaving myself open to change yeah. or nuance or for it not to necessarily go from being yes to no, but it going from, I'm not sure to, I'm a little bit more sure that it might be in this direction. Yeah. And then being okay with that and going, that, I haven't really got good it figured way of putting out. It. Yeah. That, that's a really good way of putting it. And, and I'll put it as far as to say, freedom is the right to be wrong. Yeah. Freedom not is, have the answers. Yeah. Freedom is the right to be wrong. And some people will say, oh, you're on the wrong side of history and all these type of throwaway comments. I'm exercising my freedom to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah. And, okay. and that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. It was going, well, this is my, this is where I'm deciding to be. You're deciding to be there. Hmm. Let's still have a discussion. I had the thought before. I think that's a powerful thing with this platform and the power of having guests hmm. and chatting to them. And especially hmm. with what you're doing with your podcast and having different people on that are able to talk about how they've run business, how they've been ethical in running business, how they've gotten over certain things and the way they've done it. It's not you having to go, here's the 10 steps to life. It's you going, how did you get through it? How did you get to here? 
Tell me about that. Yeah. And it's different. It's, it's, it's giving other men examples of what could be, not necessarily what mm. should be. Mm. Your path may be different, mm. but you're giving them options, aspirational options that you don't have to be the mother that goes, I don't know. I don't have my phone. To, oh, <laughs> I don't have to swear at other people in the kitchen. You know? I like that. You know, we use the we use the uh, the analogy of uh, when you joined me on Iron Wheel of we're all in a room bumbling around with the light off, and and that that is honestly how I see things. It's only by the grace of God that we have the opportunity to see, you know. And so, and so for me, it's it's absolutely the case. You know, I don't sit here and pretend to be any authority on these things, nor have all the answers. What mm. I do invoke and wish upon everyone is fair and rational debate and discussion, if anything, around these things, you know, and, and I listened to a, a really amazing discussion between two juggernauts of thought and discussion, which is John Anderson, who's a conservative podcaster himself, who used to be the, um, the, um, what do I want to call it? The, <laughs> Was it Deputy Prime Minister? Under Deputy John Prime Minister. I was going to call him the Vice Prime Minister. <laughs> I've had a big Monday. So the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia and Jordan B. Peterson, who was a, was a clinical psychologist, turned into um, a monster thanks to the left. And these they created three, it. They did. They created him. And, and you know, to his point, I love, I love his... Um, <laughs> His position on this, he's um, worked out how to monetize social justice warriors. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it is brilliant. <laughs> so um, these two have a pod, they had a podcast recently where um, John Anderson was invited as a guest to the Jordan B. Peterson podcast, and they talked about um, democracy and, and more importantly, around the need to have honest, robust, rational debate. And when we look at the pandemic of COVID-19, what has been missing, and in particularly if we can talk domestically here about Australia, what has been missing is open, honest, rational debate around the solutions required to, to cure this economic and health issue, but also... Um, open up both sides of discussion around that on a state and federal level. And that just hasn't happened in our country on, on an, on a, on an even perspective. Hmm, because it's and, been and, very much, they said this, so therefore I'm yeah. saying the opposite because yeah. I have to absolutely disagree yeah. with everything they subscribe to because we're on the opposite side of the fence, yeah. which it's, just is not actually political. helpful to the greater. Yeah. Yeah. It's been political and, and it's been at the detriment of the Federation. It honestly has the way in which the States have behaved. And the lack of ownership from a state perspective. I mean, how many listeners have you got, Brendo? A couple. There's a couple. You put a number to it. I don't know. Across the platforms, about 100. You lost five tonight because of what I've said, but that's okay. I'll get them back for you, I promise. <laughs> if they listen this far. But it's a good point. And I think to loop it back in, it's that bravado factor and that lack of humility and the dominance of ego. And the inability to retract statements and go, actually, I was wrong. And yeah. to have some humility and, and leadership and humility is currently an oxymoron. Absolutely. Unfortunately, if you want to be a successful political leader, you cannot be humble. You need to 
think that your shit don't stank because everything I, every decision I make is the best. Yeah. New South Wales is wrong. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also as well, the continual embarrassing treatment of the general populace to think that we are so ignorant and lack the cognizant ability to understand what is going on from a leadership perspective. And that, that to me is deplorable. And it became about politics and not people. And that was the point, you know, of these two having this discussion was that the focus should and should always be is that we're here to serve the people. And that sounds like an idealistic thing, right? And, and I, I'm guilty of idealism. I am because when Nicole and I set our marriage counseling test 10 years ago, I got told I was an idealist and I, and I, and, and, and I much prefer to be an idealist than a pessimist. Uh, I do slant more towards realism these days. Um, you know, which I like to place under the disguise of realism, but it is at times, you know, we can all be nihilists deep down and it's a dangerous slope, particularly right now after what we've gone through for 18 months. But I, I am an idealist and I like to expect more from our leaders. I really mm. do. You know, and, and, and people say, well, what about you? I say, I'm not the one sticking my hand up to be the prime minister. He is. He is. And if you're going to have the gall and audacity to think that you have that ability, you better damn well come to the table with it. And, and again, this is not about politics not left nor right i'm just saying straight down the guts you know imagine like leadership yeah right or or even if it was like a job description imagine that if it was like if they were actually middle level managers and they're sitting down for their six-month review with their manager they would have all been terminated right it's like okay so your job is to do these things and um so far you've been um well here you haven't really hit and uh these targets imagine if they had kpis imagine if the state leaders had KPIs and targets and Scary. their income was tied to hitting those targets as a populace um, and a culture. That would be, uh, it'd be hilarious to see how different it would be. Yeah. And, and, and d- democracy has a fatal flaw in that if, if the general populace is not, is not valuing what is in the best interest of the country, Mm. The politicians will pander to the vote of the general populace and whatever that looks like. Keep people so, comfortable with the mediocrity yeah. so they don't change anything. So to a degree, we get the outcomes we deserve. Oh, and that was always, I remember when I was traveling across America and this one American was like, oh, so you're, you're forced to vote. Mm. And like, that, was, that was a different perspective. And I'm like, oh, let's explore that. Long story short, you know, where we kind of didn't see eye to eye, I'm like, cool. And he was complaining about Trump at the time. So it was around 2017. I'm like, oh, and he's complaining about Trump, complaining about Trump. I'm like, oh, so did you vote? He's like, no. I'm like, see, now I find that hard to appreciate anything you've just said because you're complaining about something you've done nothing about. Mm. There's one thing that you can do to help that outcome that you're not happy with, and you're not doing it. Yeah, bias. Was there bias there? Must have been. Yeah, bias is a horrible thing. Do you know why I know that? Because I used to be biased in a That's horrible so- way. Oh, I bled blue, man. Yeah. All the way. I bled, I bled blue. And, and we're all products of our environment, you know, whether you like it or not. And so I, I did. And then, and then all of a sudden I realized, wow, it's actually not that simple. 
Because that's not that simple. And, and you know, you, you learn that fairly fast, that, that you know, there's scumbags on both sides. Well, and, and I think the most crucial thing to, to encapsulate the last however many minutes of conversation and the thing that is so often missed more often than not is you learn that. Mm. Well, you learn that. You don't. Not everybody does and most people don't. Mm. We don't learn that, oh, wait, maybe I'm subscribing to this belief of, and in this belief is a hundred things. And because I subscribe to the belief, I'm signing up to these hundred different things. And now I believe those hundred different things, red, white, or blue, I'm, I'm in. And maybe I don't actually agree with all those, but because I subscribe to this belief, I have to believe all a hundred and we just go, fine, I guess that's the way it is. And that's a, a lesson that I feel like we could all learn a lot from. Yeah, He's learning that yeah. you can disagree with a few. Yeah, because the alternative is silly. It's very silly. The, the idea that you are aligned with someone because you're aligned with someone, you're not willing to have a practical and logical appraisal of their values or their policies, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's silly. You don't do that in football. Just because you're back with Hawthorne doesn't mean you don't critique Hawthorne. Right. right? It, it's silly. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like in a previous podcast, my mate Ewan, when we're talking about church and, and that's an often thing that we do with our leadership is we expect them to be perfect. And when they're not, we crucify them mm. choosing those words deliberately. And we throw them and we go, well, everything they said must've been wrong. And it's like, did they screw up majorly? Yep. Does that mean everything they said was wrong? No. And our brain doesn't know what to do with that. We can't. It's almost like a self-preservation thing. Because I signed up to this and I thought this was a safe idea. Turns out they were full of it, so I've got to reject the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. And and I think people would be pleasantly surprised. Uh, well, politicians or, or leaders, whatever, whatever you want to call them, they would be pleasantly surprised by their actions if they just came out and took ownership. And we're honest. Could you imagine and, that? And, that, and that pro- first step the, out, that tip, who would be the first one to step well, out? I reckon well, they'd get shot down first. Well, the problem with that is the problem with that, and where there is a, a bit of a, an issue with with the general population is that uh, is the is the populace ready for that? Well, and 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 what part would the just to zoom it out even more would the media play in cycling that thing and just keeping on everyone's mind until the leader gets cancelled? Mm. And what part mm. does that play in manipulating the whole picture? Yeah, because it's it's been really fascinating when you look at politics, which is which is the consummate leader. When you look at politics over the last two hundred years, you know, particularly in the West, um, it, it used to be a very prestigious job that that carried an extraordinary amount of respect and loyalty and honor and accolade. Now. You know, it's hey, shake a politician's hand, count your fingers. Hundred percent. You know, it it goes again. You know, you've got a hundred listeners. Let's cut them down. You've got, <laughs> you've Love got, it. you know, you've got real estate agents, used car salesmen, politicians. Do you know what I mean? Um, with without being too derogatory to those people, but unfortunately, mm. that's um that's the perception these days. Mm. And you talk to you know, having a conversation with one person about just 
unpacking the idea of a certain politician that's a career politician is they finished university, they went straight into politics and that's all they've done ever since. And, and now they're is- leading a, a, a community of people and you're like, that's that, That's all they've done is the political side. They don't actually have life experience. They don't know how hospitality works. They don't know how the events industry has been obliterated. They don't understand, oh, you know, but you can have 20 people inside. It's like, yeah, cool. That won't cover the rent for the week. Like you're making these decisions, but you don't actually fully comprehend what they mean because you've got zero life experience. Yeah. And you made a good point earlier is that don't ever underestimate the value to man of chasing money. Mm. The smart people are in private enterprise. Uh, I'm sorry to say it, but it's the fact. Private enterprise created penicillin. Private enterprise created the World Wide Web and Facebook and Google. Private enterprise got us to the moon to a degree. I know the Kennedy administration had a lot to do with it, but it is private enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, you know, there is a lot of the private sector produces the best because the best want to chase money. And that's how it works. And power is obviously another elixir that people chase. But at the end of the day, people want to chase money. And a lot of it's in private enterprise. And a lot of private enterprise stuff particularly your Fortune 500, your your top tier CEOs and high level operators, look at the way in which the mismanagement of COVID-19 in the West and broader leadership in the West over the past, whatever metric you want to call it, 20, 30 years, has been found in wanting. Yep. And And it has. And they've thought that. And some of them have just capitalized on it. Hmm. Hmm. Easily. And so that's that's a difficult thing for, for people to to swallow. But at the end of the day, that's 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 the facts. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. And I love I love that we're whittling down listeners. So for those of you still listening right now, <laughs> you, are you regretting having me on at this stage? Not at all. Not at all. I love these rat holes. I love these conversations. It's good discourse. Like John Anderson said, you need to be able to have these conversations. Yeah, And if people aren't comfortable listening to these conversations, they find themselves in echo chambers only listening to people that agree with them. And just read history. That never ends well, no matter your political beliefs. it's um, You need to surround yourself with people that make you uncomfortable. No, I agree. Drinking your own bathwater is overrated. Absolutely yeah, no. Nah, that's, yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Yep, that's a good analogy. But you mentioned earlier, the price of entry into podcasting. And I just want to really say that I appreciate you sharing your private opinions and thoughts on a you know platform like this. I know, you know, you mentioned that it is one of the prices that you pay to do the podcast, as well as the time that you have to carve out to be able to do it. I know speaking from experience, last two weeks with the dodgy laptop, carving out time to do trailers and you know, I've just uh, it's literally just been like I just need to get the episode up because just the world we reawakened after lockdown mm. zero time between mm. work because work's ramped up so tell me about that's your a good work. thing though yeah that's a good thing <laughs> i'd rather be busier than bored yeah. every day of the week yeah but i've committed to this podcast hence i'm wearing this by the way for those of you that maybe because i may be putting this one up on youtube i don't know might be a thing um i'm wearing a party shirt because this is episode 24 and uh, officially, I've doubled the target I set to do this year of number of episodes of podcast. So, self high five to me. I'll high five. Thank you. Now, tell me about your work and what you do 
as one bloke once said to me when I was young and I had no idea what he said, what do you do for a crust? I was like, what? He's like, what do you do for a crust? I'm like, I don't know what he's saying. He's like, what do you do for work? I'm like, oh, that's what you mean. Right. So other than the Iron Wheel podcast being a husband mm. and a father, mm. what else do you do with yourself? What takes up 99% of my time? Yeah. It would be, uh, I am very privileged and blessed to be the COO of Bolt Group. Bolt Group is a logistics and transport business based in Melbourne. And we pretty much do everything when it comes to getting a solution for transport supply chain logistics globally, domestically. And so I run a lot of the operational aspects associated with that business. So we've got about, as of right now, the high 30s of staff. So we're technically an SME by definition, but... What's an SME? You know, small, medium enterprise, right. um, but uh, growing fast, 10 years old, so a 10-year anniversary in January, which is exciting for the business. And, you know, I have the privilege of leading people in that organisation, which is something I'm very, very passionate about and what I enjoy, as well as problem solving and just getting, you know, the vast logistical challenges solved on a day-to-day basis. So we do 3PL warehousing, whether it be e-commerce pick and pack, getting apparel and, you know, business to customer solutions done, or whether it be, you know, bulk storage of commercial grade products for the renewable sector, whether it be small parcels around Australia in less than container load solutions, or whether it be global import of full 40 foot containers out of China. There's a lot there. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, if you asked me six months ago, half the acronyms that you just rattled off, I'd be like, I've got no idea what you're talking about. It's a bit of jargon there, sorry. But having uh, been in lockdown recently, one of the roles that I picked up was a little bit of uh, logistics. You and did. Can I just say that I am, uh, I'm terrible. I'm never going to work in the industry because with my events background, I'm used to a run sheet that runs within a minute. And if it's a minute out, I'm not happy like because then I've failed and I haven't coordinated it tight enough. And then, you know, for example, you you got three trucks coming for three different deliveries, one going to Western Australia, one to Queensland, one to New South Wales, and they're organized 10, 11, and 12 o'clock. So that's plenty of time. And it goes in order, you know, Western Australia, New South Wales, Queensland is when the trucks are rocking up. You know, they don't do that. They all rocked up at 12. And they were in reverse order. So I was all organized going, all right, this is the lot for Western Australia. This is New South Wales. This is Queensland. Oh, no, this this truck's for for Queensland. But no, it needs to be this one. My plan was, it needs to go to my plan. No, truck driver's here right now. Those logistics side of things, it is just, like, what are, is that normal to have to deal with that sort of stuff? Like, and I feel like with OzPost at the moment, I've sent stuff off to customers within Victoria that have taken more than a month to get there. That whole back end of logistics and you put something in or you order something online and it comes to your door seems like a little bit of witchcraft for most most people, I feel. I don't know how it gets here, but it just gets here. Like, what does that back end actually look like? And what are those day-to-day frustrations, struggles? How does it happen? Yeah, so it is far more haphazard and reactive than most people would like to think it is, particularly really? business, particularly business owners who are sending freight 
nationally or domestically from, you know, from a commercial perspective. It is extraordinarily reactive and it is very problem solving based. And that goes from the top to the bottom. It doesn't matter if you are, you know, a tier one carrier like Aeroad or Ozpost or TNT or FedEx or whatever it might be, or DHL, you know, or a backyard Barry, you need to be reactive to get your freight from A to B. And that's just the way it is, because to your point, there are an extraordinary amount of variables. And it's kind of like trying to problem solve on quicksand. You know, the earth's moving under your feet while you're trying to find solutions, you know. And so it's incredibly fluid. And particularly, you know, as you start to become a business that has multiple moving parts, it can be quite a hectic environment. But in that chaos, there is an ex- there is an expectation that that is what the day-to-day is like in transport, extraordinarily um, challenging. And I know I've come from the franchising industry, which is meant to be a very cutthroat and challenging industry in itself, and it pales in comparison to transport. How so? It, it, just the variables, the, the competition, um, the, the expectation, time-sensitive freight, you know, de- you know, delivering on time, you know, to DIFOT, which is an acronym for, de- you know, delivering on in time and full type thing, you know, it's very challenging. And people in any service industry, it's very distinctly different to product-based services, but, you know, in the service industry, it's extraordinarily challenging because you, you are uh, going up against a lot of, a lot of different businesses in a very, very tight market. Mm. And I guess, yeah. you know, the customer's main concern or main, you know, want from the business is get it there ASAP. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and people, people want things immediately. And, and it's worth mentioning as well for context is that the last 18 months, you know, pandemic was called 2020 March was early March in 2020. So it's been a good 18 months of absolute chaos in the transport industry because, you know, trying to get supply chain to behave in what is not traditional, you know, market forces is very difficult. And, not going to get into the weeds on all the nuances associated with that, but it's been extraordinarily unprecedented. I mean, to, to shut down construction for two, three weeks in Melbourne. Yeah, what did that do? Well, that just spattered everything. It just stuffs everything. You know, it creates an absolute log jam. How so? Well, <coughs> excuse me. Um, if you've got throughput, everyone understands throughput. You've got your standard throughput. You know, think about in your terms, you've got the number of beers that you would produce and sell on any weekly basis. Mm-hmm. If you stop that for three weeks and then you open it, what do you think happens? You're expected to sell all of those beers at once, in a sense. So, so what you have, and what you have is an, an infinite number of parcels being delivered and pallets and containers being delivered, and you know to site where where you know construction works, which is one of the big three in Australia. Right, construction mm. is a massive evergreen industry in Australia. It was evergreen until this happened, which is unprecedented. And so then you've got this extraordinary demand where everyone wants everything at once. Add COVID-19 into it where you've got the challenges around mandatory vaccination. You've got the, the e-commerce strand of business to customer because no one can sell out of bricks and mortar. And before you know it, you've got a perfect storm. And that's why your parcel from Australia Post takes 12 weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think To give you context. 
And 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 people aren't always understanding that case in point from from my role at a customer that I've been chasing for weeks, going, you need me to put an order in, you need me to put an order in. Not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Thursday before reopening Freedom Day in Melbourne. Yeah. Brennan, I need two kegs tomorrow. Yeah. Mate. <laughs> and and people don't care. I no just, offense, but they, then they calls me at kegs. 12 o'clock the next day going, yeah. where are they? Like, yeah, they want their kegs. Mm. I understand you want, but oh wow. This is come on, mate. Did, and and that was the day after um was a Star Trek and DHL went on strike. Yeah. Yeah. But and then trying to explain that to the customer, like, so when's it getting here tomorrow? Um <laughs> all of Melbourne's doing the exact same thing you are. Mm. But I'm the center of my universe and I want my my ASOS package to rock up on my oh, yeah. doorstep ASAP. Yeah. Because I paid for Express. <laughs> and that and and so that hopefully that gives you a bit of a snapshot of of what it's like. Wow. And mm. so, Outside of a COVID world, what are the normal, <laughs> remember what normal was, um, the normal variables day-to-day in a role like that? Well, uh, to, to be very honest, I've only been with Bulk for three years, so I'm certainly no, no authority with, with, with transport. Um, I'm not a 20-year veteran or anything like that. I rely heavily on smart guys like our MD, yeah. Lachlan Tyndall and, and our owner, Josh Wilson, and, and a few others to certainly guide us along the way of trying to make less mistakes than more, but the, the traditional, you know, day to day outside of the COVID is, is a little bit more predictable. You do have market trends where you've got peak season, obviously based around Christmas and, and, and mid year around in the financial year. And it's a little bit more manageable, but the challenge around COVID has been that logistics has essentially been on steroids since the pandemic began because everyone's been reactive in either, holding on to gross domestic products. They don't want to get stock to stuck on the water coming in from imports or whether it be, you know, moving to an e-commerce type um, model to, to avoid, you know, having to set up a bricks and mortar shop during the pandemic. So outside of that is a little bit more predictable and more mm. trends. But majority of your time has been during COVID. So that's kind of all you know. Yeah, so that's right. Yep. In that sort of problem solving on quicksand that you mentioned, is that mm. natural for your personality and your bent to going about your day-to-day or is that different to what you prefer? That's a good question. So I'm, I'm a big process guy. So I'm all about setting up processes and structures for repeatability and to measure and refine those processes over time. That's, that's my love language. I'm not a reactive person per se. I don't like wake up, waking up in the morning and coming to work and not knowing what's going to be put in front of me. That's very challenging in my industry because it is extraordinarily reactive and you can't get those P1 issues can cross your desk. P1? Priority one type yep. issues, you know, where, where you've got to drop what you're doing and move on to that, that priority. Everything's that can, urgent. Yeah, that's right. And that, that, that can be really challenging for my personality because I, I do like to sit down, structure my day, work through processes and try and formulate better framework for the business and set up, you know, training, you know, um, procedural um, expectations and things like that. So for me, I I do find it a bit more difficult in that environment, but at the same time, it's good for me to be stretched from a problem solving perspective. Mm. And Mm. that stretch place is, is always fun in hindsight. (laughs) It's rough in the moment speaking from experience. How do you go then being in a stretch state? and managing a team at the same time. 
because you know speaking from my own experience I was in a role and it was not quite like that but I was being stretched but then also having to lead other people whilst being stretched and that's this weird contrast and juxtaposition of feeling completely out of your depth and not feeling like an expert and not feeling like you got your ducks lined up yet you're leading people where you need to <laughs> How yeah. do you go? How did you? How do you juggle that as well as that stretch space? Yeah, so I think that there are certain luxuries you don't get to enjoy as a leader. Oh, that's a people. that's a can of worms. Yeah, because everyone wants to go off the handle. Everyone wants to have their moment where they get emotional, or they get frustrated, or they vent, or they act upon those emotions. And as a leader, when you're leading people, you don't get that luxury, right? So. I do believe that calm is contagious. So keeping a blue head is obviously critical when you're leading mm-hmm. anyone. And sometimes having to compartmentalize and internalize those stresses is advantageous when leading certainly groups of people visually, uh, where that, the optics are certainly self, self-evident. But at the same time, you do need to be real with people. So it's about finding that line of saying, you know what, I'm frustrated or it's, it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be irritated by circumstance. But that is a really fine line about where that's productive and where that's uh, probably not very constructive. Yeah, because there's a line there where as an employee being led by somebody that isn't reacting adequately to a problem, yeah, that you go, well, they're not interested. They're not engaged. They're not giving it the appropriate yeah, yeah. whatever attention yeah. that they feel, which sometimes may be misaligned to reality and what you know they may only know somebody that blows up every time something minor happens and then when you don't do that like oh, he doesn't care that's yeah. hard yeah and i i've worked for maniacs i've worked for people who um throw things and chuck tantrums and it always looks silly you know no one likes a john McEnroe. he never looked cool on the court right everyone no one would want to work for him no everyone wants to be a roger federer it's like you know a couple of beads of sweat we get it makes sense you know frustrated that you made a bad shot we get it makes sense full-blown tantrum uh -uh. no not happening and so that's that's kind of where i am to to create a bit of illustration for people about how i try and control myself that i'm not perfect okay i've mac and road i've mac and road i'll say that you know there's certainly times when i have but trying to keep that under your head as much as possible and remain solutions focused is ultimately the key and uh you know i suppose um not letting the fog of war which i call that you know which is the commotion and the moving parts and the people management and, you know, tomorrow's duties and today's duties and family duties and all the different aspects that would at times overwhelm you, um, disrupt your decision-making and keeping your eye on the prize. And are there any habits that you employ to help maintain that call? Yep. So uh, one of the ones is, well, look, I'm big on habits to start the day as, as, as you know, I know you are, you know, you, you're familiar with that Brendo, but, I'm big on journaling, so I don't like being in my head too much. That's an mm. important part of, of, of how I try and manage my time and manage my day and make sure that things don't go beyond um, what is manageable from a stress perspective. Uh, it's very good with solving problems. Mm. The other one is I'm list-orientated. I place lists. I try and prioritize my tasks. Just because I live sometimes in a chaotic environment from an industry perspective doesn't mean I can control the controllables personally. So what I do is I do create tasks throughout the day I manage what I can manage um, and then try and, you know, prioritize and execute. Because that sets you up 
for yeah. the chaos. I mean, that was always my my strategy as well with events mm. is mm. I'm not a natural admin person, but I've learned that if I want to be able to handle the chaos of when a supplier doesn't rock up on time or a vendor rocks up with a, you know, a 12 meter truck instead of a three meter minivan mm. and I need to create space with that. So, okay, well, I'm so well organized and I know my floor plan. I know the controllables because I got in early. I'm set up for the day. So when everyone else rocks up at start time, my ducks are all lined up. I'm all sweet. So I can, I'm, I'm ready to hand. I have the capacity to handle the chaos. I, I'm in control of my capacity. I can control that, build that, get organized, and then everything else happens on top of that. Yeah, that, that's a good that point. That easy, right? Well, <laughs> but, that, but that's a good point. It's like prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. And that's something that like I do that. believe in. And so doing that first is that controlling those controllables. Um, the chaos will be the chaos. Uh, and then trying to stay proactive, not reactive throughout the day. And then the other thing is as well is, is contingency. He's always mm. having contingency plans. Is that, you know, I never want to be, you know, it's like um, the Navy SEALs have a saying, you know, one is none, two is one. Okay. So it's like saying you bring two of something, you prepare for the first to fail. And if you do that from a contingency perspective in your day-to-day from a business perspective, where practical, there's a tipping point. Okay. You can't have redundancies for every single facet of your day. But if you can prepare redundancies on those set things where you know the diminishment of your day is exacerbated by that one thing going wrong, probably do some contingency on that one. Yeah. And not to sound like a broken record, I feel like it takes a, a degree of humility, which is usually born of experience in knowing that you can't solve everything on the first go yep. and that your best laid plans are not always going to work. You know, the to tell the story really quickly for me that, that taught me that lesson the earliest was when I had a, an accident, my first major car accident when I was younger was because somebody tried doing a U-turn from the left-hand lane and I was in the right-hand lane. And for me, it just imprinted in me this, you could be the safest driver on the road. You'd be the best driver on the planet. I'm not saying that I was. I was 18 driving a Commodore. But it doesn't stop other people from being Muppets. Like you can't control everybody else. Yeah. So from then on, my driving was always looking that extra level forward, watching out for what everybody else was doing rather than just being in my own world going, it's just me on the road. It's mm. not. Mm. You have to be aware and prepared to go that even though you can be in control, think you've planned everything, your logistics are all sorted out, mm. yeah, then COVID is going to come along and you're just going to have to work with it. Mm. Yeah, and that that's almost like a situational awareness, right? It's like, looking for that one thing that other people are going to miss that may very well go wrong. I'm not talking about an obscure thing that has one in one million going wrong. I'm talking about something that is plausible, but may not probable. And if it does go wrong, you're the guy that's sitting there with the solution because you thought about the contingency and that's that situational awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. So coming into logistics, where did you come from before then? And, and what were the things that you learned that prepared you for what you're in now? You mentioned before it was franchise. Yeah, so I have um, famously worked in a lot of different industries in a mm-hmm. lot of different jobs. So you know how you do you meet these amazing people that have these CVs where they've stayed somewhere for five years, stayed somewhere for five years, and then found their big role. I'm not that guy. Well, you preach okay. to the choir. I'm the same. I've worked in like cool. five different industries um, in in the last seven years. <laughs> I'm, among, I'm amongst friends. So yeah, from my perspective, I, I certainly dabbled in in a lot of different industries, not, not by some kind of clever uh, strategy, but just because I was terrible at sticking at things. 
Okay. So I used to hop around from job to job because I got bored. I felt like I you know, was out for something different. I would chase, you know, stuff. And so for me, I have a very broad experience level from a myriad of industries from picking strawberries to being a security guard to selling women's shoes to being a mobile shirt and suit salesman to selling and designing playgrounds to what else have I done? Um, selling dog wash trailers to now being in logistics, you know, to cleaning toilets. So really broad level of experience from, from that perspective. And, and one thing that, one thing that I, I like to say is that to find out what I wanted to do, I had to work out what not to do. And some people are lucky or blessed in life that they just go beeline. I want to become a doctor. I want to become a lawyer. You know, um, that was not my path. I had to fart around and dick around for a while before I worked out that, you know, there's certain things I love doing, which is, which is, you know, leading and, and, and developing and being around people from a, from a sort of business perspective and building businesses as well. Like that's one thing I really love doing is, solving problems, setting up processes, you know, creating structure and building, you know, that, that foundation. And that took me a long time to work that out. A long time. To work out that's what you love doing or sort of your mm. unique mm. skill set that you can bring to a business. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and as I was saying before, a lot of mistakes and silly decisions inside of the last sort of particularly 15 years, but you know, that, Hey man, you know, you're, you're a combination of your experiences, right? It doesn't matter how you get them. And and the other thing as well is that I'm I was a very poor student in high school as well, and and this is something that I don't take as a badge of honor. I would have liked to be a very good student, you know, and be a little bit more wise and mature in in understanding what education can unlock. But unfortunately, I was a 17, 18 year old male that could not grasp the importance of education at that age. And, and that happens for a lot of guys. But if I can say something to anyone listening right now, if you don't have a bachelor of, you know, whatever you think is, is, you know, the, 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 the highest level of education, you know, or, or, you know, or diploma of whatever, it, it, it's not a, it's not a cap. It's not a limitation to where you can go. And I'm, and I'm evidence of that. You know, I've been very blessed to have opportunities because I put myself out there and I've become a proponent of self-learning, you know, without sounding weird. Yeah. And do you feel like, I feel like there's a, there's a lot there and especially given the context of this podcast and the conversations I've had over the last 23 episodes, love that I can say that with people. And it has been a mix of luck, right time, right place. Yeah experience for some grinding and just grinding away and for some mm. it's just liked it in school did it in uni I'd do it now and i love it mm. and that's great and and they're happy and they're content in that but i think you and i in the, in the same boat where not great students have done a myriad of different things to be able to whittle out and learn what are my one skills but what energizes me and what are my tolerances yes i I'm technically good at this, but just because I'm good at it doesn't mean I should do it or will continue to do it. And that's been another thing that's come out in a few conversations is sometimes you have to uh, 
let certain things go and go, no, even though it may have been a good thing and take a step back or sideways to be able to go, no, because this is going to energize me more. There's going to be more capacity to do other things. Do you feel like the world though is built for that sort of journey through careers though? Yeah, I think it's certainly overly slanted towards tertiary informal education. And I think that sometimes practical skill sets that people have, like if I can use an analogy, I can't join the Liberal Party right now because I don't have a tertiary education. Okay? Now, now if you think that's right. There you go. Yeah, if you think that's right. Okay. So, so that gives you a bit of an idea and, and I could be wrong on that, but that was the case five years ago when I looked into it was that I was not qualified to join the Liberal Party because I did not have a tertiary education. Now, I'm not saying that guys should, have, should drop out of school at year 10 and, and, not, and not bother about formal education. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it depends on what your career path is and what your aspirations are, but there are a few ways to skin the cat, so to speak. And one thing I will say, is that I've come up, not against, that's the wrong word, but I've shared boardrooms and rooms with men and women who have had vast degrees, very clever people, cannot apply themselves practically to life on a day-to-day business balance perspective. Just cannot. Cannot hold a conversation of substance, cannot problem solve, cannot get down and dirty in businesses in the way in which you need to at times. And so I think that it is heavily skewed towards tertiary in a way where I think it can be a little bit counterproductive if you are a Mm. man or woman who doesn't want to be a chippy, right? But also feels like they want to communicate with people, who feels like they want to lead people, who want to build businesses, who want to become entrepreneurs, all these things. Mm. Yeah, you're very, as you said, the one sort of option you had, if it's not university, you're going to be a tradie. Yeah. It's A or B. Yeah. And, and, and I'm testament to say that there are other parts. Now, those are becoming less and less more pop, less and less more accessible mm. as we become more and more, you know, um, education based. Mm. And how do you balance up just, you know, diverting the conversation slightly? Is, you know, being, you know, a husband and, and having kids and obviously, you know, wife takes off time, maternity leave during those periods of time, that adds financial pressures. How does that sort of journey through multiple jobs in multiple industries, how did you weigh up that decision-making of changing when you've also got a wife and kids and a mortgage and things that you need to provide for, that sort of provider mentality but also, this is not the job for me. I need to move on. And not letting that sunk, not sunk cost, that sort of like provider mentality overshadow that, well, I'll just stay in this job forever because that's the safest option for me and my family. How do you negotiate that? Because that sounds like it'd be tough. That's a damn good question. You know, I think that at the end of the day, it is an extraordinarily precarious line to tread between being a provider and making bold and honest decisions about your career path. And I'm not going to begin to presume what that looks like for each person. not going to talk about me, but I've been incredibly blessed in that every time there has been, I'll call them milestones, a key milestone that's required more resources, you know, whether it be buying a house, whether it be having your first child, your second child, getting married, whatever these milestones are, 
I've been very blessed in that God has been able to provide me with opportunity from a financial perspective and also a career opportunity perspective that I have neither deserved nor been qualified for. Okay. But the stretching process in that has been extraordinary. You know, people talk about the saying, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Well, that's certainly been, was the case with me was that, you know, I just was really blessed in that I had opportunities present themselves to me where I wasn't forcing doors. I think that's a key point, right? I'm really Mm. big on peace. You've got to, people talk about fame. They talk about girls. They talk about power. They talk about money. Quite often people don't talk about wisdom and peace and, and, you know, and understanding and, and these are the values and attributes that so often get overlooked um, that people pursue in life. And one thing I've always tried to pursue is peace because peace is so underrated as, as something that you can pursue with your decision-making, you know, whether it be the right timing. You made the point earlier. I can tell you now, you can have ultimate resources, ultimate skill. The biggest metric for success is timing. It, it doesn't matter if you're Elon Musk mm. or Jeff Bezos. Timing is everything. And those guys will attribute that as well. Attest to that, sorry. So, you know, it, it is a lot about timing at, at times, but also as well working out your priority system. You know, is your priority um, to, as a man particularly, to grind it out, be a provider, be a priest, be a protector of your house? Mm. Or is your priority right now to just find the job that you're happy in? You know, and happiness is also one thing that's always overrated at times. I'm not saying you're not allowed to be happy, mm. but everyone's pursuing happiness. And that is that can be dangerously selfish if not weighed evenly with other values. And is that something that you kind of just instinctively navigated or was it in pretty close conversation with, with your wife? Yeah, I think Nicole has had a big part of my development. You know, me and my closest mates have a running joke that my life didn't start till I met Nicole, you know, because (laughs) before I met Nicole, and this is honest truth, before I met Nicole, I was relatively underachieving in a a very astronomical way. I was watching the carpet grow, really. I was moving from job to job. And not that work is the only metric of success, okay? I want to be very clear about that, okay? If you're a good dad, and you raise your kids right, I find that infinitely more valuable than becoming a billionaire. Mm. Infinitely more valuable. Mm. Society won't tell you that, but but that's something that I believe in. So Nicole was a big part of that. And also as well, Brendo, just getting mentors around me and just asking questions and getting the right people around you and trying to navigate you know, the room with the lights off and ask people, where should we be going? Where's the light switch? You know, and Mm. that's something that's been a big part of my development and growth and decision-making as well as having really good people around me that are smart and more importantly, wise. And what had to break in order for you to seek out those mentors? I've always been fairly aware of my own inadequacies. You know, and growing up, I wasn't uh, a very a confident child or young boy. I was fairly shy and and lacked a lot of confidence and was probably a bit of a classic underachiever from that perspective as well. And so for me, seeking out instruction and guidance has been quite a natural thing for me. I've never been someone that's pretended to know everything or 
had so much pride that I can't ask the right questions. That's something that I've been very lucky to be able to do very, very organically. And to that, in quotation marks, underachiever, younger self, if you had the time machine, how would you converse with your younger self? Not necessarily what would you say, but like how would you approach that conversation? That's a good question. I think I think it'd be more around confidence mm. and it'd be confidence and just being sure of yourself. Mm. You know, I, I think that I grew up in a very big family or by today's standards is big, certainly not by by, you know, previous standards of may not be, but I have five brothers, you know, and 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 I grew up with a very blessed childhood and 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 my dad was an amazing guy and, and sacrificed an extraordinary amount that I will never know to, you know, give us opportunities that were, were brilliant, you know, and and but in that being part of a big family, you know, I certainly was was shy, you know, I was you know, I was the sort of kid who used to get homesick, you know, unapologetically I would get homesick. And that was my predisposition i never chose mm. to be that way that was the way i was wired you know and so for me it's like i'm so excited by where my life's going because i consider myself an extraordinary underdog mm. if that makes any sense and mm. i love being in that space i love being the underdog you know whenever whenever i've done anything that has any resemblance of competition i want to be the guy that's got the worst odds I want to be that guy, you know what I mean? Because to me, it's not, not, not because I'm not because I've got a defeatist attitude. I want to set the bar incredibly low is because from that place, I can surprise people. Mm. Mm. I think that's a great note to end it on, mate. That's, I really like, I don't know what else I can add to that. And, And time has absolutely flown as well. But I just want to say a huge thank you, man, for your courage in sharing your truth um, and the integrity of which you have shared and laid out your life and, and your experience, man. And I, it's inspired me and just those things alone help me navigate life. And hopefully for those listening, it helps you too. Iron Will Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you, you check it out. It's good. Some really good stuff. Anything else you'd like to add? No, it's, As- been, a, it's been a blast, man. And, and thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's always a privilege to one be asked to, to share your thoughts and, and just have a chat with another bloke on the other end. So I loved it. Thanks, mate. Great. No worries. Anytime. Let's Cheers, do this mate. again. Thanks Sounds for listening, good. everybody. Have a great day. Ciao.